0: Uh, We are going to be jumping in Acts to chapter 20 this morning, first 16 verses, so hear the word of God. Just remember, Paul was in Ephesus at this point. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent uh, for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and, and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return to Macedonia. Uh, so, Pater, the Bereans, uh, son of uh, Pyrrhus, uh, from Berea, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius, Derby and Timothy, uh, the, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. Uh, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away uh, from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in, in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days." On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, or Eutychus, I'm sorry, uh, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and talking, or taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, uh, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive uh, and were not a little uh, comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asus, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had uh, arranged, intending himself to go by land, and we met him at Azos. Uh, we took him on board and went to Midland, and sailing from there, we came to the cl- the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched in Samos, and uh, the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had des- uh, decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, I'm assuming you realize that we're coming to the very end of Paul's third missionary journey. There's a good bit of the book of Acts that is consumed with Paul's journeys, and we are about to wrap those things up in just a few more chapters Uh, and, and most of what's taking place here uh, early on is, one of the things I want to point out here is this is his third journey, and we're given a lot of details about particular places, but there are a lot of places that he goes that we're not given any details about at all. So, I mean, of all the reports that we have of, of his three missionary journeys, this is the one that has the least amount of material in it, the least amount of information. But we know why Paul's doing what he's doing. He is retracing his steps now for the third time for the purpose of strengthening and encouraging the churches that have been planted in all these different places through his missionary journeys. Estimates are that this trip that he took was about 2,500 miles and some of it was by sea, but a good bit of it still was by land. By land. And we assume that most of the time on land he was walking. That's almost a cop foreign concept for you and I. If we're going any place of any distance, let's say we had to go someplace that was two miles down the road. How often would we say, well, I'll just walk? What if it's just a mile down the road? How often would we walk? What if it's just 500 feet down the road? How often would <laughs> we walk? But you need to understand that there are cultures in the world today. That walking is still the principal and primary means of transportation for people. Uganda's that way. The average person in Uganda walks pretty much everywhere they go. And it's not inconceivable for you. Know, it would be inconceivable for us if someone asked us to walk 20 miles. But we met people in church in Uganda that had walked 20 miles to come to Church. would we even do that we're not really given many details of his third missionary journey just the places he went to not really what took place in most of them at all but he comes to troas and remember that is the settlement that's on the the western tip of asia minor where he had gone on his, secondary, uh, his second missionary journey. And, and he had the vision of being called over to Passover into Greece. Remember that? That was in Troas. But on the first day of the week. Which is Sunday. They gather. The church gathers. If you're familiar with the Old Testament. You understand that you know, the Sabbath day was on saturday that's when and that's when they got together and that's when they worshiped but one of the things you see very early on is the church began to develop and gather that there was a shift from saturday to sunday so this particular time in troas they are gathered on sunday but people people often wonder why Why is it that the church has opted to meet on Sundays instead of Saturdays? And people come up with all kinds of reasons and explanations. But what I would say to you, it's probably something like this, that even though Christianity and Judaism have common roots and some overlapping doctrines, they are distinctly different religions. In other words, to make very clear to the rest of the world that the Christian church that was developing at that point was not just another sect of Judaism. It was a distinctly different religion. And that's just my guess. I don't know for certain. I don't guess anyone does. Judaism and Christianity really do have some things in common. One of those is they are both works-based religions. And you may cringe when you hear me say that. But they're, they're works-based religions in a different way. <laughs> now, Judaism is like so many other religions in the world. It's all about you doing. Keeping this particular bunch of rules. And you know if you, if you keep them well enough, then you're okay. And if you don't, you're in trouble. Uh, but your salvation is works based but it's not your works it's the works of jesus he did it for you he kept the law perfectly absolutely for you the good works that we do flow forth from that understanding Our good works do not contribute to our salvation at all. Our good works are the product of people who are actually saved. Because they have a love and a passion for God and for his kingdom. But It's always helpful us to remember this and that we are fundamentally saved by the works of Jesus, not our works. That makes Christianity... Fundamentally different than every other religion in existence. Not just Judaism, but every other religion. But while Paul was in Greece, the Jews once again connived another plot against him. It caused Paul to change course. He was originally planning to sail all the way back pretty much to Jerusalem, but instead he decided to take the land route because he heard about this plot that was being connived against him. So once again, he will make his way from Greece all the way up through Macedonia and then to Troas, and he will remain there for seven days. And while he was there, he just took some time off, right? (laughs) He figured that he had put in a hard few months and it was time to take a little R&R. So he sat on the beach and, you know, enjoyed himself while he was in Troas. Nope. On the first day of the week, which would have been the Sabbath... When we were gathered together to break bread, that tells you that whoever wrote this book was actually there with Paul. We were gathered together. Paul talked, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Let me ask you something. How would you respond this morning if you said, you know what, I really feel like preaching a lot today. We're going to hang around here till midnight. How would you like that? You see, this is one of <laughs> this is one of the things about you find in the early church is the more they heard, the more hungry they got to hear more and more and more and more, and that sort of thing. It's just it's hard to imagine to to, to preach for, for the hours and hours that Paul actually did here and have an audience that was interested and focused on what he was saying. Now, just keep in mind, he was an apostle, and I'm not, and 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 there aren't any more. Uh, especially gifted by God in in very magnificent ways to do what he did and all that. But you know, one of the hallmarks of our modern society is we tend to be schedule-driven. Everything we do is done according to some schedule. Gatherings are supposed to start at a particular time, and they're supposed to end at a particular time. We don't have really open ended meetings, even though sometimes they kind of go that way, but we don't have meetings that go on for a day or anything like that. What about worship services? I tell you, one of the most amazing things, and you heard me say this before about my, my trips to Uganda, is how willing and how wanting these Ugandan brothers and sisters are to get together on the Sabbath, to worship. Because many of them walk tens of miles just to come to church. I've often told people this, that if you went from here to Uganda, and it's somewhat of a torturous trip because you're on airplanes for almost two days. (laughs) You know, that kind of thing uh, uh and, and whatever it's not a trip for the faint-hearted by any stretch of the imagination but i've often told people through the years and i still mean this and that is this if you went to uganda just to spend time worshiping with our Ugandan brothers and sisters for one service it would be well worth the money and well worth the trip because there's a sense of joy that you very often find in them that we don't very often express ourselves. Everyone knew about what time, and I'm saying about what time the worship service was supposed to start. (laughs) Because even the starting wasn't on some strict schedule. It might be a little earlier, it may a little later. And one of the reasons is this is because most people don't have watches. They don't know when it's 9.15. They know it's about somewhere between maybe 9 and 10. That kind of thing. Let me just tell you this. That when I preach, I have to make myself stop. I mean, I do. Not always, but a lot of times I do. There's a lot more I could say. There's a lot more I want to say. But we have our schedule. Let me just say this it's not uh, unusual to watch people as they fall asleep in church. Some of you are smiling (laughs) for good reason, because you know that I've noticed. And let me tell you this, one of the reasons I I never fall asleep in church, you know why? Because I'm standing up here talking. If I was sitting where you are, I probably would do it on a regular basis. Because we're getting older, and the older we get, the harder it is for us to stay focused and and, and all of that for lengthy periods of time. But this particular sermon of Paul goes on into the night. Well into the night. Making sleepiness even more of a factor. I think it's a measure of, you know, the passion that Paul had for preaching the gospel. And the hunger and thirst that the average person had to hear it. Eutychus, a young man sitting in a third-story window, falls asleep and hits the ground dead. Can you imagine? Some people would say, well, why would God let something like that happen? Well, we're about to find out. And here he is, faithfully attending church, paying attention to what's going on. But sleepiness overcomes him, and he falls to his death. I've actually seen some of you guys fall asleep. I've never actually seen anybody fall out of their chair. Much less a window. Firstly, for Eutychus, Paul was an apostle, and God had allotted him, great powers. God, working through Paul, raised Eutychus from death. You need to understand something. This wasn't that he was knocked unconscious or something like that. The Greek makes it very clear that he was dead as a doornail. Period. Why did God do that through Paul? For a lot of reasons. Certainly one was to validate Paul as an apostle. Because there were still people that questioned his apostleship. Because he was not one of the original twelve. Validated his apostleship. But it also validated his message. There's a sense in which the raising of Eutychus was God's stamp on the... the, the truth of what paul had been teaching and preaching that message of eternal life through faith in christ eutychus is a combination of two greek words you meaning good or well and 2k meaning chance or fortune so his name literally means good fortune <laughs> very appropriately named it seems to me none of us have been resurrected physically That every one of us has been resurrected spiritually. That is if we believe. If there's anybody in this room that's not believing, this hasn't happened to you. But if you believe, if you're really here because you have faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only, then God has not raised your dead body to life. He has raised your dead spirit to life. There's a sense in which we've all already experienced a a more important resurrection than the resurrection of the body. A spiritual resurrection. The raising of Eutychus served a number of purposes and one of those was to, to validate Paul's apostleship and his message. Is also to strengthen the faith of those who witnessed it. Can you imagine being one of the witnesses and seeing this happen? Do you think it would encourage you more to believe? What about Paul? Do you think it encouraged him? He would have been possibly quite weary of ministry at this point. And he, was con- he was confronted constantly with serious conflict. His life was under threat all the time. You don't think Paul was tired? It also encouraged the eyewitnesses to receive Paul's message. Because it was God's message. And it does the same thing for you and I this morning as we're sitting here in Springs Presbyterian Church. 2,000 years later. The concept of the resurrection of the dead, in a particular, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is perhaps the most scrutinized fact in the history of mankind. It has been investigated, it has been scrutinized, like nothing else ever has. Many, many people have sat out to or set out to disprove it. You know what the typical thing is? is on the other end of it, they become believers. <laughs> because there's so much overwhelming evidence of the reality of it. What about this? What, do you think Eutychus made it all the way to the ground without ever waking up? Can you imagine? because you, you know, when you start to fall, I would imagine he woke up and he's going, oh my goodness, <laughs> in midair. Have you ever experienced times of spiritual slumber? I have. Have you ever felt like as as if you were actually falling away from the faith? But then suddenly God awakens you once again? it would have been very easy to be puffed up and arrogant and all get out if you were paul you know preachers that are very well known and very famous they are and sometimes do fall How much scrutiny have you, do you think people have given to Paul's preaching over the years? I mean, I get criticized sometimes by people in the congregation and other places I've been and stuff like that. But how many people do you think just tried to <laughs> take it all away? I would say this that other than Jesus Christ, if you just look at the volume of people converted as a result of the ministry, the second to Jesus, he was by far the most effective missionary to ever live. Therefore, the most one of the most the, the second most effective preacher to ever live. But you know what Paul said about himself, about his preaching? When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom. That was part of his message to the Corinthian church. He also says this to the, to the Corinthians, 1 uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, Paul saw himself as nothing, as little, as weak, When I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I was with you in weakness and in fear, much trembling. My speech and message were not implausible words of wisdom. Two times he says basically the same thing to the Corinthians. It's funny, when, and Mike's probably experienced this to some degree now. You know, as you go through seminary, you have preaching classes. You have classes on pretty much everything you do as a pastor uh, and all of that. And I can tell you, there were guys that, you know, and, and, and you would have preaching labs where each one of you would take a turn and you would preach a sermon. And then you would be assessed by your professor and also the students in the room by your peers. And as you can imagine, there were always guys that really kind of stood out. They just seemed to have, they, they, this, this preaching stuff was maybe just kind of ingrained in their DNA or, uh, or, or whatever. But let me tell you a secret. One of the things that I found is I've spent time in the denomination since then is a lot of those guys who came across as being just set apart in a very, very special way that the rest of us were not failed in ministry. There are a lot of them that did very well, don't get me wrong, but there were a few of them that I knew pretty well. They did not succeed in ministry. The most important aspect of preaching is to be God's mouthpiece. To, I don't want to say allow, but to be used by Him. Speak through you is an amazing and awesome thing. I want you to hear a few things that some of the very most well known or well known preachers have said about preaching. D. Martin Lloyd Jones, what is the chief end of preaching? I think it is this it is to give men and women a sense of God and His presence. So let me tell you if you ever leave here on Sunday morning, maybe you leave here every Sunday morning and you don't feel like God has been in this place, then I have failed you. You need to get somebody else. Steve Brown, I had him for preaching classes, and some of you have have listened to Steve Brown, and he's one of the most noted PCA preachers. He's not doing so much anymore, but for a long time he was very well respected, very well known for his preaching. Not other other things, but for his preaching in particular. I had for preaching class, he said to us uh, numerous times, if you can do anything but preach, please do. please do i was saying that to mike this morning if you can do anything else brother please please do it watchman knee the gospel we preach must not be something we hear from men or read from books unless it is delivered to us by god it can serve no spiritual unity In other words, preaching is Holy Spirit given. Another pastor, a contemporary pastor, I can't even pronounce his name. The Bible does not say we should aim at numbers, but rather urges us to faithfully proclaim God's message in the boldness of the Holy Spirit. This will build God's church God's way. Not man's way, but God's way. Unfortunately, preaching is more and more taking a back seat to other elements of worship. There are churches where the sermon has become just a little homily that is is just intertwined with a lot of singing and all that kind of stuff going on. Preaching for a long time was the most central aspect to Christian worship services. today there are churches where you wonder if there's ever any real preaching that takes place at all. Our fathers in the Protestant Reformation understood how important preaching was in the life of the church. It was in fact, they saw it as the very lifeblood of the church, taking second only to the the scriptures themselves. There are very few people, even in the church today, who really believe that Holy Spirit-driven slash guided preaching has the power to transform the world. This should be a reminder as we study this particular passage this morning. If not for uh, the spirit-driven proclamation of the gospel to the world, the church would have ceased to be before it ever got started. that the Holy Spirit was the key to every aspect of the stuff that's gone on here that we have studied in this book of Acts. So what I'm telling you, spirit-driven preaching is what's, what founded the church. It started with Jesus, by the way. In a spirit-driven preaching that has sustained the church for all of these centuries. In a spirit-driven preaching that will carry the church into glory. Nothing else can. Nothing else will. So thanks, Mike. church needs guys like you. Amen.